remember as we continue on through this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians that he wrote from prison, that so far that Paul has modeled in his own life what it looks like to take his eyes off of himself and not prioritize his own interests, but the interests of others. We've seen that a lot in the opening chapters. And then he calls the Philippian church to fight for unity through humility, which is only attained by beholding Jesus, by looking at Jesus in his beautiful and wonderful display of humility. That's what we looked at last week from, uh, from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And so we're going to, because of where the text is going, we're going to go back to that section right there where we talk about, we look at and talk about Jesus's display of humility. But before we do that, I want to make sure that we give proper weight to our perspective of who Jesus is and was in humbling himself coming down. And so there's four passages, uh, three passages that I want to look at really quick. Uh, John chapter 1, you can turn there. It's also going to be on the screen where I'm going to read from for time's sake today. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, this is the apostle John talking about Jesus saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What a wonderful, beautiful picture of Jesus Christ showing us that he existed eternally before creation with the Father, that also God used Jesus in creating the world, it says all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made, and that he is life, he is light, and that light that is Jesus Christ shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend or overcome or quench it is a way that multiple translations would say that. The darkness cannot overcome the light that is Jesus Christ. If we turn out every light in this room right now, and I got out my cell phone and I turned on that little light from my cell phone, the darkness could not overcome that light. Darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. So Jesus comes in and the darkness cannot overcome Jesus. Another passage I want to look at real quick is Hebrews also chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says this, also talking about Jesus. says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That means right now he's upholding the universe. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is one more picture of Jesus being with the Father and God using Jesus somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, supernaturally in a way that we can't really wrap our minds around that through Jesus, God created all things, made him the heir of all things. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. And that currently, right now, at this very moment, is 
upholding and sustaining all things. Your cells sitting together to form you is by the sustaining grace of Jesus Christ right now. Your heart beating, your lungs breathing, gravity keeping us on this earth, the planet spinning, says upholding the universe by the words of his power. Another passage I want to look at really quick is now Colossians, also once again chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul talking to the church in the city of Colossae, starting in verse 15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him are all, thing, or all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And I didn't tell the crew about these verses. I realized mid-sermon, first service, that I need to keep reading. So I'm going to do so in my Bible, starting in verse 18. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent Jesus Christ. Preeminent simply means nothing higher, nothing greater. So if Jesus is preeminent, that means there is no one, no thing, no force that is higher than him. No one, no thing, no force that is greater than him. He is preeminent. And we can see once again in this passage to the church in Colossae that he was used by the Father in the creation of all things. So we are talking as we're about to get into one more time reading from Philippians chapter 2, when we read about the humility of Christ, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clinged on to or reluctantly letting go of, when we look at that picture of Jesus, it's important that we keep in mind from these passages that we just read, we're talking about the eternally pre-existent Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. The preeminent one, nothing higher, nothing greater. The one who is functional in the creation of the universe, who currently right now is upholding all things in the universe. The one who would dominantly command the wind and the waves and tenderly welcome the child on his lap. The one who was the object of God's justice on the cross and also the agent of God's grace and mercy on the cross. The one from whom demons flee and the one to whom ragamuffins and sinners cling. This Jesus, the one whose name would call every knee to humility and every tongue to declaration of praise that Jesus Christ is Lord forever to the glory of God, this great, preeminent, omnipotent Jesus humbles himself. And let's go to Philippians chapter 2 one more time and read again what we read last week, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here we go, this beautiful Christological passage about Jesus, who though 
He was in the form of God. We just read that, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and He was God. We just read that. He did not count equality with God, which He had, a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Listen, we're, we're, we're not talking merely about like servant leadership. Like Jesus came to serve and he led us, led his disciples and leads us, but we're not merely talking about cute servant leadership. We're not talking about a CEO putting on a disguise to become, you know, the whole employee uh, goes in and, and gets among the employees and sees how things are going. He's not coming in as a CEO and the undercover boss to see how things are going and then find one worthy person whom he could give a, a $10,000 check to. We're not talking about a principal who goes, you know what, kids, if you raise this much money, I'll shave my head and take a pie in the face. We're not talking about simple acts of humility like that. We're talking again about the preeminent God of the universe whom created everything and currently sustains and upholds all things who then humbles himself, takes on the form of man, takes on the form of a servant and obeys, says humbles himself by being obedient to the point of death and not only the point of death, but death on a cross. See, the Roman cross, in the day of the height of the Roman Empire, death on a cross, crucifixion, was not the only death penalty that there was in that empire. There were several. The cross was reserved for the worst of the worst. The cross was reserved for, purely for insurrectionists and rebellious slaves, those whom people viewed with the utmost disdain, those whom Rome said, we want to make a case, a public spectacle out of this individual. When someone was crucified, Rome was saying, we want to show people not to act this way. They want, it is the most painful and gruesome death that the Romans had. Not only that, it was the most publicly humiliating and shameful. Hung up naked on a cross, mocked and cussed at, spit at, and so Jesus willingly lays down his life. When we consider what Paul says here, when he says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, we're really good at thinking that we're better than some things. And we don't ever want to say that from our mouth. We, anybody who walks around and goes, I'm better than that, you're like, <laughs> we wouldn't say that stuff. But we allow it in our hearts. And Jesus goes, you know what? I'm equal with the Father. I was used by the Father to create 
everything. But you know what? I'm willing to humble myself, take on the form of a servant, die a brutal, humiliating death at the hands of my creatures so that I can reconcile my father's children back unto himself. Knowing that my father is holy and righteous and just and there must be payment for sin, just like we talked about in communion earlier, I'm going to come and be the sacrifice, humble myself unto death, the death on the cross, death at the hands of those I'm coming to save. The preeminent one, the one above everything, greater than everything, brings himself down to the low form of humanity, to the lower call to death, the lower call to the depths of death on a Roman cross. It's after painting this painting of humility, this painting of the willfully crucified deity, God, Paul gets into the practical implications of having such a Savior in view. So going back to Philippians chapter 2, we'll continue reading now. Remember, we just read about this humble Savior who obeyed to the point of death on the cross. And the first word he says in verse 12, therefore, which means he's not just talking randomly. He's saying, in light of what I just said, therefore, since we have this humble Savior in Jesus Christ, since that, let's go, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, coming right out of this beautiful, majestic, theological dissertation about Christ and the character of God we see through the humility of Jesus Christ. This theological passage of verses 5 through 11, he goes on and doesn't work on trying to do some major transition to show, I'm changing points now, I'm going in a different direction, let's talk about something else. But coming out of that theology of Christ rolls straight into practical implications on what that means for the church of Philippi and for us today. See, accurate knowledge of God causes faithful living unto God. I'll say that one more time. Accurate knowledge of God causes faithful living unto God. See, he's saying, therefore, therefore, as he started this, or saying, since, since this profound mindset of humility is yours in Christ, man, keep on obeying. You've done a good job, but let's keep on. And since, therefore, since this profound display of humility is yours in Christ Jesus, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. These are practical applications that flow out of theological views of Christ. See, I want to encourage you to always be cautious. Just be cautious when someone tells you, and you don't need theology, You don't need doctrine. That stuff is bad. You know, it gets all up in your head and you get, listen, theology is simply seeking to understand and know God. That's all it is. Does that task sound like a noble one? I think so. 
seeking to study and understand and pursue God as much as our finite minds can through the revelation of himself, through scripture, I think it's important that we seek to have sound theology and sound doctrine. And people who go, you know what, I'm not really a theology person. I don't think we need theology. I I think that's equivalent to saying, yeah, I'm not a person who does a diet, really. I'm not into dieting. I just eat what I eat. And But the truth is, diet today, with our understanding there, that's a word that people have took to mean, oh, that's where you change what you eat so you lose weight. That's a diet, right? Well, well, no, I mean, in a sense, yes, but ultimately, all of us have a diet. You might not be on Atkins or, well, that's been a while, I guess. You might not be on keto or paleo or whatever, oh, there is now. But you do have a diet that simply consists of everything you ingest, right? Everything you consume constitutes your diet. So you can sit here all day long and go, yeah, you know, I'm not really a diet person. I just eat and, you know, that's how I roll. Well, you have a diet. It's probably a bad diet. (laughs) Because the people who choose to be intentional with their diet, which I need to learn from, the people who are intentional with their diet are those who are mindful of the knowledge of what happens with what they consume. And so people who go, ah, you know, ah, theology, doctrine, eh, I just, I just am going to love Jesus. Listen, you can't love the guy you don't know. You can convince yourself you can, you can pretend to, but theology is meant to be a servant unto knowing Christ. I will agree that theology and doctrine can be dangerous when they are the, in, the means and the end unto themselves. If theology is meant to just get to theology, to where you're just going, man, look how much I know about God. I know these doctrines, and I know these tenets of the faith, and I can recite this much scripture, and I know this, and I know this, and I know this, and I'm smarter than the other person because I've got all this doctrine and theology. That's bad because that's the knowledge that puffs up. But when theology is a tool that serves unto knowing, beholding, and savoring Christ, then it is a wonderful servant. Theology and doctrine, wonderful servants, terrible masters. Don't go, I don't need them, I don't want them. Acknowledge, like dieting, I need to be mindful of what not I'm consuming through my mouth, but through my mind and into my heart. We need to be mindful of what thoughts about God we're allowing into our heart and mind. And Paul here goes, man, look at the magnificent humility of our preeminent master, Jesus Christ. And therefore, theologically, as we look at who Jesus Christ is, and as we learn the character and nature of God through Christ's humble obedience to death and death on the cross, therefore, let's keep obeying. You have obeyed, let's keep obeying. Let's work out our salvation in fear and in trembling Being mindful that it's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. See, Paul wants the church in Philippi to recognize that it is in that beholding of Christ that it challenges us, it changes us. I, I think of what he said to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul said, It's in beholding Christ with unveiled face. And he's talking about how Moses had a veil and there was the veil in the temple separating us from God. But in Christ, we look at Jesus without that veiled face. We look at him for who he is. And as we behold Jesus, we're changed 
from glory to glory to look more and more like the image of Christ. You want to look more like Christ? Then look a lot more at Christ. If you want to look more like Christ, then look more at Christ. Man, I should have made that a main point to go on the screens. That one's free, I guess. If you want to look more like Christ, look more at Christ. And that's what he's calling us to because he says, therefore, keep on obeying. Work out your own salvation and fear and trembling. After mentioning Christ's humble obedience unto the most undesirable command of offering himself on the cross, he says, guys, let's keep on obeying. Bearing in mind also that there's no command that God would give us that's greater than what he gave to Jesus. There's nothing that God's going to call us to and ask us to that's going to be greater than going to the cross. And you can be like, well, Stephen, you know, there's people who, who've died for Christ. Yeah, but they didn't bear the sins of mankind. And so there's no call of obedience that, Christ would, that God would give to us that's greater than what was given to Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and is now seated at the right hand of majesty on high. And then he goes on to say and encourage them to stay encouraged. And he says, for you have not yet suffered for your sin unto bloodshed. He's saying you haven't done, you haven't gone through what Jesus went through. As you look unto Jesus, be mindful. You haven't even gone through what he's gone through. And so let's look at him, behold him, let it change us and transform us. As we look at him, we begin to look more like him. And then we come to that peculiar statement of work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. There's a lot of questions around that statement. Work out your salvation? Does that mean that we can work for salvation in fear and trembling? Does that mean that, like, we should be afraid. We should be scared. And to properly interpret this passage, we've got to keep it in context. Remember, context is important. Bearing in mind, up until this point, Paul has been talking about what? He's been talking about striving for unity. He's been talking to the church about being in one mind, and one spirit, having one attitude, being unified and then even after what we're about to read, he goes on to talk more about unity by saying, do nothing with each other by grumbling or complaining. He keeps the call. So the context before this statement and after this statement, and if you get into the Greek syntax of some of these words, the whole salvation, especially the Greek syntax of that word, is meant to communicate the collective salvation of that church. Now wait, Pastor Stephen, are you saying that the church could all be saved together by their work and by what they do? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's abundantly clear throughout Scripture that every single one of us will be held accountable for our own faith. But we can also see in the book of Revelation, if you go into the opening chapters, you'll hear Jesus talking to the Apostle John saying, hey, here's these seven churches of Asia. And then he pronounces judgments on those churches collectively, saying, hey, this church, you're really good doing a great job at this and this and this. But your main problem is that you've forgotten your first love. He was talking to a collective church. And so with that in mind, bearing in mind the context here, that when he's saying work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, he's saying church family, you Philippians, you Wisconsinites, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling as you're striving to be in unity with your other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, no, I am not implying 
that us working together for unity will solidify any one of us as individuals, uh, as believers on judgment day. That's between you and the Lord. But Paul is trying to say that part of your individual salvation will be wrought out in seeking this unity amongst your fellow believers. And not only does he say that this is a, a deal, he goes on to say, do this in fear and trembling. As if, as if everything of him painting the picture of his own life and as if him painting the picture of Christ's humility, as if those weren't enough, and the calls to humility he made previously, as if all that wasn't enough, he continues on with saying, therefore, do these things, work out your salvation, and do it in fear and trembling. And in the context of seeking for unity within the body of Christ, I think that's one of the things that we could be like, well, of course, I know my holiness is important. I know me not living in an ungodly manner is important. Like what Paul said earlier in the letter, that we want to live a life worthy of the gospel. I get that all those things are important. Unity within the church, well, that takes two to tango, and maybe it's not that important. If I don't like so-and-so, then I'll just sit on this side of the church. Not a big deal. Paul's saying, in fear and trembling. Work this out for the collective salvation of your church family. Now, there are people in this room right now who will spend eternity with the Lord in heaven, in the new earth. And there are people in this room right now probably who will spend eternity without the Lord. I hope not. And so, again, what Paul is trying to say, going back to the previous chapters where he says, listen, if there's any comfort in Christ, if there's any encouragement and love, if there's any sympathy, and he goes on to say all these things to imply, if God's working in you, if the Holy Spirit is changing your heart, then complete my joy by being of one mind, of one spirit, being unified. And there's something that we ought to step back and go, okay, Paul is putting a lot of weight on unity within the body of Christ. He's putting a lot of weight on this. He's saying, do it with fear and trembling. And previously, he was implying that if God's really working in your heart, then it also ought to continue on, not only to yourself, but the way that the body of Christ is in unity together. See, it would not have been shrouded to the recipients of this letter that Paul was at this point still talking about the importance of unity within the local church. As if the quantity of his calls to unity wasn't enough, as if the emphasis of the example of Christ was not enough, he tells them, listen, we ought to do this in fear and trembling. We ought to take this seriously. This is not some gentle reminder. This is not a, a friendly suggestion where he's like, hey, if you think that this is important, you know, go ahead and do it. This is an authoritative command from an apostle of God, which 2,000 years from now, or 2,000 years from this later, has now been canonized as inspired, God-breathed scripture, therefore applicable to us, where we ought to go, okay, if I'm at odds with someone in my church family or with other believers, if there's something between us, I need to look at that circumstance with fear and trembling and put the weight on it that Paul's putting on it and bear in mind what we talked about last week from Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus says, if your brother has offended you, go to who? Your brother. Go to them. Towards what end? 
And if your brother hears you, you will have gained your brother. Jesus' goal for confrontation was reconciliation. This is achieved by loving one another and serving one another in humility and remembering what he said previously, that we ought to look to the needs of others more than ourselves. Consider others above and before ourselves, humbling ourselves, remembering what Jesus said, that if any of you wants to be master, let him be servant. If you want to sit at the head of the table, go sit at the foot of the table. This is the call and model of humility for all of us. He's saying, hey, if I haven't made it abundantly clear, if you haven't got it yet from everything I've said in the first half of this letter, if you haven't got it abundantly clear now, I'm telling you as a local church family to work out your collective salvation through fighting hard for unity, to shut down, absolutely shut down grumbling and disputing and complaining against one another. And do this by remembering that not unlike our Savior, this can only be done by humbling ourselves to think of others before and above ourselves, thinking not of our own interests, but of the interests of others. And I think, one, no, this is not to mean that each of us gets saved because our church family got saved as we strive for this. Beyond that, another thing that could come up out of this text of work out your own salvation in fear and trembling is, is Paul communicating that we're saved by works. He's saying, work out your salvation. And again, I would say no, because it's abundantly clear throughout the rest of Scripture, especially in Ephesians chapter 2 and in Romans and in Galatians and several other places from the same author, where in Ephesians 2, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, for we are saved by grace. It's on our wall. It's in our name, right? Word of grace. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, this is not of yourself, this is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus that he ordained for beforehand that we would walk in them. And so Paul is saying once more in several other places, you can't earn your salvation. You cannot do that. So that's not what he's saying here. And we see he recognizes, and what I just said could sound like you could earn your salvation. And that's why he goes on to say what he says next. He says, For, coming out of work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Other translations say will and do, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Paul goes, so work out, work hard, be diligent at this labor of working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Take this seriously. And before you go off thinking that you're actually going to achieve accomplishing your salvation, let me remind you that it is actually God who works in you, both to give you the desire, to will, to want to do what pleases him, and the power and the ability to actually step and walk and do what pleases him. So before you get into this error of works-based righteousness, let me just remind you, God's actually the one who's working in you. He's hearkening back to the same things he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he said, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of our Lord. Meaning, until we're not here anymore, God's going to be working in you. God is going to be working in you, both to want to do what pleases him and to actually do 
what pleases him. Because as long as we're looking at the word of God and all that it, uh, it, it decrees and commands to us and all the things that, that scripture says, here's how you need to live, here's how you need to obey, wa- obey, walk in humility, love, serve one another, put others, if we just go, all right, yeah, I'm gonna do it, and we don't bear in mind that it's actually God who works in us, then we're gonna be trying to do it out of the flesh. Now, here's the difficult tension of it. Is that when we are mindful, he's saying, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And then he says, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. In my own life, there have been very few times where in me working to serve God, obey God, please God, live worthy of the gospel, live a life that is uh, glorifying God, most of the time it feels like me working. Most of the time it feels like me working. The most significant area in my life where I feel this verse, which feelings, yeah, whatever, But the most significant time in my life where I feel the implications of this verse is where he says, it is God who works in you to will. That there are times where my heart's wrestling back and forth where I know I don't want to do what pleases God. But there can be times where I get into the word of God and I feel all of a sudden like the spirit of God is giving me power to where he's changing my heart to where it's not anymore the word of God over my head going, here's what you've got to do. But the Spirit of God coming into me and going, I'm going to give you the strength and the ability to do it. But a lot of times, loving, serving, obeying God will feel like work. I'm mindful of Jesus. His work of redemption on the cross, I think, probably felt like work. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross, knowing what he's about to go through knowing about the stripes and the cat of nine tails, knowing about being beaten with rods, knowing about the crown of thorns that's coming, knowing about his beard that would be torn, knowing about the spear that would come into his side, knowing about being taking the nails in his hands and on his feet, and knowing that he would be on the cross for hours, struggling with asphyxiation, struggling to breathe and hanging down and pulling back up in pain with his hands and feet and the nails to breathe again, knowing what he was about to go through, says to the Father, Father, man, if there's any other way we could do this, If there's any other way, let it be done. Can we do that? But in that humility, obeys him to the point of death and says, Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. I imagine that everything Jesus went through on the Via Dolorosa leading up to the cross, hanging on the cross, I bet that felt like he was doing work. And a lot of times in our lives, obeying and serving and pleasing God feels like we are doing work. And Paul encourages us with the truth to say, hey guys, yeah, work it out. For, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work out or work for what pleases him. Uh, that's the same thing we mentioned from Ephesians 2, that we are his workmanship. It's the same thing we mentioned from Philippians 1, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. See, Paul doesn't disconnect our real, functional action and work, doing things for God. He doesn't disconnect them from doing them in God. 
that God is the one who's actually working in us and doing us. What I love about this is it gives us the opportunity to go, man, if we're wrestling with a certain sin or temptation and, and there's a day where that temptation comes and we, we, we fight and we resist and say, God, help me, and, and, and we, we say no and we turn away from it, this verse helps us not go, I did it. Yeah. I'm getting better. This verse causes us to go, Thank you, God. But it feels like we're the ones, right? But it's God who works in you to want and to do. He doesn't separate them. He says, work hard for God and know that when you do, it's actually God who's working through you, giving you the desire and the ability to do what pleases him. We work hard for God, knowing God is working in and through us. We work hard for God, knowing that God is working in and through us. Continuing on in verse 14 through 18, he gets back to these unity conversations a little bit more. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. He's talking to us. Let's not be grumbling against each other, disputing, arguing, complaining. Do all this without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Check this out. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out that I did not run in vain, or I'm sorry, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul makes the pleas, the calls to humility, shows his own humility, points to the tremendous humility of Christ, gives more practical implications of here's what it looks like to walk in humility, and then he shines light on why it really matters. Because there's a wicked world watching. There are unbelievers seeing us. There are people who don't know Christ looking at the church and if ever in the years of 2020 and 2021, there should have been and could have been and hopefully was and is moving forward a people group that is able to go, you know what, we might disagree on this or on that, but what we have together in Christ is greater than our disagreements. It ought to be the body of Christ, right? Right? If there are people who could go, you know what? I feel this way about COVID and about masks and about vaccines. I'm going to turn around for a minute. I feel this way about that issue, and I know you feel that way about that issue. If there was a people group who could go, I know you feel that way, and I feel this way, but you know what? Let's aim to, in love and in humility, seek common ground where we can in grace and humility and love, seek to understand one another, not to just be right and not to just be a bully, but to have humble, loving conversations. It ought to be us, right? It got real quiet. <laughs> it ought to be us, right? If the things that divide us are greater than the Christ that unites us, then we don't have Christ inside of us. 
And we above all people, and I don't mean that like better than people, different than all people, different than the world, ought to be the ones that the world looks at and sees and goes, man, I, I don't get it. Those people over at Word of Grace, like, I know some of them who believe this stuff about all that stuff that's happening, and I know some of them that stand on this side on all that stuff that's happening. And it's so weird. They like, they just peacefully and gracefully and lovingly and humbly talk those things out. It makes no sense to me. It's like, I thought we were supposed to yell and like call each other names and passively, aggressively post about each other on Facebook and tweet about one another, you know. Say those idiots on the other side. The world is watching. And what if we could, in humility, fight for unity in such a way that when the world sees us, they sit back and go, there is something different about them. How could they be so unified in the years of division? How could they love one another so much and serve one another so faithfully and so selflessly and so well despite the fact that they come from different pay scales, different corporate careers and directions or callings and, and jobs and tasks and different neighborhoods. I mean, it's so strange. I see they've got, they've got people from Kohler and Plymouth and Sheboygan Falls and Cedar Grove and Oostburg, and they've got people from Howard's Grove, and they've got people from Elkhart and Gill. This is like, and, and their kids are like at each other in sports. But it's so strange. They're able to just love each other. Like they help each other move and they paint each other's houses for them and they cook meals for one another. And when they're in the hospital, they go visit each other and care for each other. And when they're sick, they're cooking soup for each other. Even though they're in these different places of life, these different stages of life, these different socioeconomic backgrounds, these different races. We've got Germans and Dutch and African-American and Indian. we got all these in our house. It, I don't understand the unity they've got. How wonderful does that make Jesus Christ look? That we could go, yeah, we might be in different socioeconomic classes or whatever you want to call that stuff, and we might have different backgrounds, different views and opinions on different things, but man, Jesus Christ supersedes all of that. He is preeminent above all of that. And when we come together on Sunday or when we get together in our community groups and small groups and we get together and do life together, it's we are united by this wonderful, majestic, beautiful treasure in the field that is Jesus Christ that makes us go, man, you know what? I'm going to agree to disagree with you on that, but I still love you and I want to be there when you're sick. And I want to put our differences aside and go, that's my brother, my sister in Christ. And when you have family that you love, you handle conflict differently, right? From the people that you can't stand or whatever. I just spent three days in Houston as my, my grandmother passed away and we had a wonderful memorial celebration for her. It was incredible. She lived a faithful life of service unto the Lord. And you get a bunch of family together, there's differences of opinions, right? You get, you get different views, different perspectives. And shame on us if Christians are the ones who are ministers of division rather than ministers of reconciliation. Shame on us if Christians are the ones who are magnifying glass upon the points of division rather than magnifying glass on the Christ of unification of his people, his body, where he says to the Galatians, there is therefore now neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor man nor woman, but we are one in Christ 
Jesus. This call while the world is watching ought to be an invitation to those who don't have faith in Christ to go, whoa, there must be something to that Jesus that they talk about. And there must be something to that Holy Spirit that they talk about changing them on the inside because externally, I don't see how or why they could do what they're doing. I don't see how it's possible, but it's by the grace of God. God, we thank you for your goodness, your faith, your love. We thank you, Lord, for your word that you teach us truth, that you confront the error in our hearts and in our minds, and you invite us into living in in the light. God, I ask today that our church family would be, at least us, at least us would be a church family that shows what we've been talking about, that we could be a people who behold Jesus and, and treasure Jesus and look at the wonderful humility of Jesus and let that call us to emulate and to practice and to walk out that same humility by your grace, change from glory to glory. God, help us to live as a light in this dark world that we could show people the way of unity in Christ and show people that what unites us is greater than what divides us. And this is not for us to brag on ourselves or pat ourselves on the back, but to point glory and honor to the Jesus Christ who is the name above every name that unites us all in himself and one spirit to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.